Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got David Lewis on the line, and we're going to be talking about manufacturing demand, the principles of successful lead management, which I tell you is critically important these days. Thanks for coming on the show, David. Thanks for having me, Bob. I'm excited to uh, get together and, and uh, have a discussion about what's happening in, in modern marketing. So, you know, uh, we had a little preamble before we, we started uh, the show here. And, you know, you've been pushing for this manufacturing demand thing. This is kind of like a, an evolutionary thing or a revolutionary thing that's happening. Um, why do you think it's so critically important right now? You know, it's interesting if you take a step back. I don't know if you're a big fan of, of sci-fi, but you remember the movie uh, 2010? You caught that one with Roy Scheider, and he's, um, he's going back out into space and trying to figure out what's going on, and he sees uh, Dr. David Bowman, and says to Dr. David Bowman, he says, hey, what's going on? And he says, you know, something wonderful is about to happen. And I, and I think of that movie uh, when I think about, you know, people ask me the question you just asked, you know, what, why all the focus on modern marketing? And, and what's wonderful is marketing is really rebranding marketing. You know, we're living in an age now where, you know, the kids that are come out of college with marketing degrees, they, um, they might never know that marketing was considered a cost center or that marketing wasn't measurable. So, you know, what my passion is, is to make sure that, you know, marketing matters in organizations and marketing matters most uh, where possible. So focus on manufacturing demand, you know, my first book was really to help people understand that the art of marketing, which has been around forever, what's, what's wonderful and what's happening is now art is being matched with science. So marketing has, has evolved quite a bit. And with all this marketing technology that's out there, my first book is really about how to apply this technology to driving demand or what I call manufacturing demand. You know, it's interesting because I, I've been in the, the uh, marketing advertising industry for many, way too many years. And I've noticed you know, it evolved at one point in time, all the agencies started buying out all the small people. So it was a one-stop shop and then they didn't like that. And now it became an agency's a little bit more focused down to its core elements. And then they would reach out to people. But the last 15 years, it's totally gone 360 degrees. It's totally flipped on its head. The concept of an agency is tenuous right now because of, uh, basically what you're talking about with the automation of, of uh, uh, marketing and the ability to have a, a, a system in place that's just chugging away, chugging away, chugging away. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. So I wanted to ask you, for, when you were putting this information, because obviously you've been doing this a long time, into your book, for you, what was your aha moment? Was something that you already knew was a reality, but it really crystallized for you where, wow, I totally get that now. Well, it, it started you know, long before the book. What, what happened for me was I was running marketing at a software company in Silicon Valley, a company called Ellie Mae. And you know, they're often confused with, with Fannie Mae, and, and that's by design, the great, great branding. They're a uh, leader in mortgage software. And when I got there around the 2003-2004 timeframe, they were like a lot of traditional companies where they had a website that was much more of a shingle, you know, content out there, much more of a portal where people could get information, but they were turning themselves into a software company. And I came on board to transform them and help launch this product 
that they were introducing a product called Encompass, which is now, you know, the leading application. It's like the iPhone of mortgage software. But it wasn't back then. They didn't have any market share, Bob. They were, they were a brand new software application coming to market. So I brought in uh, a marketing automation system uh, called Eloqua, which years later was purchased by Oracle. So it's part of the Oracle marketing cloud suite. And I also brought in a CRM, Salesforce.com. And we fused these two applications together. And the, you know, the answer to your question about the aha moment was we had our head of sales and myself, and I talk about this in the book, come together and work as a unified team to think about how we're going to generate demand. You know, account-based marketing, for example, like what target accounts do we want to go after and turn into customers? Who are the people within those accounts that we want to market to? Uh, which market segments do these large companies, small companies, people using our competitors' products? The point is that we aligned sales and marketing extremely well came up with a process and a game plan and then use the technology to go after that market together. And that's not traditional. Uh, what happens in a lot of companies, sales and marketing doesn't typically align and work that closely together. So when I saw the impact that this alignment was having and the fusion of these technology and application of these technology systems, we took this company from having zero market share to over 50% market share. And if you take a look at the valuation of this company, uh, well, they went public, first of all, a few years later. And then since they've gone public, they've just been on a skyrocket. And not only – keep in mind, Bob, this is a mortgage software company that thrived during the greatest challenges that the mortgage industry has seen in a very long time. It's 2008. So I became a real believer that uh, if you could align sales and marketing effectively together, if you could apply technology to generating demand, you know, manufacturing demand – uh, and think, you know, like the industrial age, what we did for automating the manufacturing of goods and services to apply that to the information age. That's where the name manufacturing comes from. So the aha moment is, is real. In, in summary, it's aligning sales and marketing against a common sales and marketing strategy and applying technology to automate as much of that as possible. You know, it's interesting because you're right. Traditionally, uh, in the Marcom department, uh, people would almost come to fights where, you know, the marketing, the sales guy was like, what are you doing? And this is stupid. It doesn't work. And there was this huge disconnect. And to be able to, to put out something that says this is how you make them work together, that's hugely valuable, regardless of all the other amazing stuff in the book. You know, in, in, in the name demand gen uh, of my company, which is a consulting firm, that helps companies with all these technology systems was because I didn't want to have our weekly sales and marketing meeting at LMA be called the sales and marketing meeting. Like they were two groups coming together. So he said, why don't we call this the demand gen meeting? And then I later uh, was planning on writing a blog about how to align sales and marketing. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, um, started the company actually to, to help people with, you know, marketing automation systems like Marketo and Eloqua and the CRM system. So I thought, what a great name, given that it's a combination of, of, of you know, strategy of aligning sales and marketing, but also technology. Really, for, for, for a lot of the, and especially the software you mentioned, that's enterprise-level software. Can this strategy be utilized for small and medium-sized businesses that are, are using um, the free version of uh, Salesforce or some other sort of system? Or do you really have to have it on the enterprise level to be able to, to make it work? 
It's a good, good question. It's a very similar question to if you think back into the early 90s when people were just putting up their websites. They were asking themselves the question, you know, does a restaurant need a website? Does a dental office need a website? Is this um, online presence important for small businesses? And so the question you're asking is the same question we're kind of asking ourselves back in the 90s, and the answer is yes. If you think about today's millennial generation, which are not only customers for many people, but our future customers, you know, the people growing up today, they do all their research online. They can, if they're going to go buy a car, it's no longer like the previous days where you'd walk onto the car lot and learn about the different cars and learn about those capabilities. When you walk onto a car lot, you're already probably as knowledgeable, if not more knowledgeable about the particular car you're interested in than the salesperson. Uh, and if you're looking for a doctor or a psychologist or you know any type of, of goods or services, you can do that research on the web and you're expecting to be communicated to on the web as well through email, through mobile and, and digital applications. So no matter what size company, embracing digital marketing is absolutely got to be a priority. The question is not if, it's, it's just when. And the systems that I mentioned earlier, like Marketo and Eloqua, they are really designed for companies that are doing, um, you know, and Marketo as an example, they're, they're designed for companies doing probably five or more million dollars in revenue. Uh, and I say that because there's not only the cost of the system, but there's the cost of either working with an agency like ours or the cost of bringing in resources to support marketing technology. Uh, but it's not only marketing automation, Bob. You know, there's almost 2,000 different marketing technology products out there. So I talk a lot about marketing automation, and I focus on it in my book. But there's now 2,000 applications that provide all types of different capabilities, uh, everything from blog software to, to Twitter listening agents to uh, technology for capturing leads on your website or, you know, you, you name it. There's a broad range of marketing technology. And, you know, are you going to embrace all of that? No. But if you're a small company and you're a growing company and you can communicate or want to communicate with customers and prospects online, these are investments you need to start making. You know, and, and it's not only investment in the software, it's investment in uh, deciding who's going to be running that in your organization and giving them enough lead time to comprehend it, read books like yours, to really uh, be the person pushing it forward and say, this is great, but guess what? We need this now and believe in that person and help them grow in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's not about getting technology first and figuring out what to do. It's coming up with strategy and process and applying technology to the strategic initiatives. There's lots of shiny new toys out there, and if companies kind of jump in with both feet without thinking through how they're going to apply that technology, who's going to use it, and what success looks like, uh, they kind of have the cart before the horse. <laughs> it's very true. It's uh, I think one of the major problems with organizations once they start uh, getting lead generation uh organized is they start getting leads in and then they don't do the next stage, which is making the follow-up call or building the relationship. They don't have that in place and, and they're not planning for success. They're just, oh, okay, we'll try that, but not actually believing in it and getting the company up and running and going in that direction. So if it is successful, they can actually capitalize on the success. I wanted to talk about chapter two. Are you ready to start manufacturing demand? What does that mean? 
It kind of uh, is a question just like we were talking about, you know, is when is a company ready to invest in uh, modern marketing? And, um, you know, the companies that are really ready to start manufacturing demand are those that have a strategy of who they want to market to. Um, they have the ability to, if they don't already have, you know, lists of prospects with email addresses, they have a way to get that. Um, they are committed to growth. You know, they, um, you know, when you when you think about how people used to market products in the, you know, going way way back, uh, you know, you you had sales and market. You, you know, you had a a town with a general store, and the way that you reached people is you. Um, <laughs> they had people riding horses going by, right? And and you saw inside uh, what they offered, and and sales was inside, marketing was inside, manufacturing was inside. Everything was in one building. And I and I'm going that far back because if you think about today's environment, um, you and I can be sitting here doing our our podcast and reaching out to our keyboards at any time and doing research on a good or service, and you know, be able to not only engage with the company that whose product or service we're interested in, but they can have a relationship uh, with us. Um, but I find often that a lot of companies really don't understand who their buyer persona is. They haven't thought about, you know, really who their target market is. And this is really different, Bob, between B2C and B2B companies. If you're a B2B company, you typically have a better sense of who you're marketing to because you designed a product for another business and while you might think it's relevant for all businesses, most companies have a narrower focus. In the consumer space, um, you know, take a company like now, like Lululemon, which is going through a pretty big transformation. They came out with their initial, you know, products um, geared towards consumers and geared towards women, but now they are developing products uh, geared towards men, and not only creating space in their stores for the products for men, but opening up stores specifically for men. Well, if they think about that buyer persona and really understand the differences between men and women, they're going to think about the decor of the store. They're probably going to look at um, taking that thought process into their online marketing, what their emails are going to look like, what their landing pages are going to look like. And they're even reconsidering what their logo looks like because their logo uh, to many men looks like a, a woman's uh, hair, curly hair. And um, they've also discussed, you know, hey, is our logo really relevant? So it's a good example of, you know, are you ready to manufacturing demand? The key steps are knowing who your buyer persona is, thinking about how you're going to engage with them, content strategy, and thinking about um, what that you know customer um, journey looks like in terms of how they interact with your company and your products and services. So once they've thought through those things, then they really start ready to apply technology. Well, you know, it goes back, and this comes up again and again in these interviews, is people have to learn to listen. And, uh, you know, it's, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty simple, but it's really, really, really hard to do well. And that's really what you were talking about a little bit is is listening to your uh, demographic, regardless if it's B2B or B2C. If you're not listening to the industry or if you're not listening and comprehend who your target demographic is, how can you communicate effectively? And if you don't have that figured out, there's no point reaching out with uh, with marketing tools because then you're, you're just shooting in the dark. There's no way that you're going to get uh, analytics back that have any accuracy at all. 
Yeah, we don't want to we don't want to do as much uh, what they call like you know big net fishing. We we often want to do more smaller net fishing. Or you know, I, I talk in the book about using lead bait, you know, as this content strategy. And we've we've had to as marketers make a shift from developing spec sheets about our products and services to almost becoming publishers and thought leaders about content. You know, going back to Lululemon with all their athletic wear. Um, you know, they, imagine the amount of content that they can put out about health and fitness and exercise, as well as fashion, and um, what what organizations they could get involved in to position themselves close to the market that they're that they're marketing to and, and looking to sell to. So in the old days, they may have put out a spec on, you know, what the product's made of and what size it is. But in today's day and age, you know, companies manufacturing products like that for the consumer. Um, can develop a, a really huge you know, buffet of content, if you will, so that people can consume content that, that helps them get cl- you know, closer to the, the brand and engage with the company and the product in many different ways. Do mm. you still think it's critically important um, that a brand connects on an emotional level as well as an educational level? Absolutely. Probably more important than on an educational level in, in general. Um, not only has you know, the technology of marketing changed, but in the past you know, decade, the you know, topic of or science of neuroscience, which is now, uh, there's now neuromarketing, which I don't cover it in my book, but it's a field that I'm passionate about, which is understanding how to push the buy button in the human brain. And they've done a lot of science uh, in, in figuring out how the brain works and how we respond to messages. And one of the things, Bob, they know, you know, without a doubt, because of all the research that's been created, is that there's, you know, essentially six different stimuli that we need to invoke, ideally, to engage someone in a buying decision. And one of those is emotion. There's, there is one that I would say is around intellectual, it's the tangible stimuli. So if you remember back when they said, you know, four out of five dentists recommend Trident, that's a tangible factoid about, you know, a specific product or service. But on the emotional level, if you take a look at the difference between Apple and take a company like Dell, you can clearly see there's a huge difference between the way Apple introduces products on an emotional level to get almost like a cult following they have for their products versus the way Dell does, which is more about speeds and and feeds. That's a really interesting example because Apple right now is struggling because they've kind of lost their their superstar persona. They've got another guy that really doesn't fit that character and he's coming on Steve Jobs style, but it's got a little bit of a bent to it and people aren't reacting or what they're doing is they're reacting on a different way. They're not reacting in an emotional way. They're looking at, well, what is the product actually giving me? And they're getting kickback because of that. Yeah, it's, that's a good point is that, you know, when Steve Jobs would give his presentations uh, on the products, he was so charismatic and he was so passionate about what they were doing. Uh, and, you know, the charismatic person uh, is is so charming and they're dynamic and they're very convincing and very captivating uh, and that engaged a lot of people to to Apple and you know Tim Cook when when he introduced the Apple watch uh, you know in the uh, last year um, you could see there was a lot of excitement in what he was saying but it almost felt maybe a bit 
less natural uh, than, than Jobs presenting, even though Jobs is certainly uh, well-crafted in what he's going to say and how he's going to say it. Uh, Tim Cook, you know, his presentation style is, is so dramatically different um, than Steve. And, and really, there's only one Steve in this world, and there will only be one Steve in this world. But your, your point's really there in that um, Apple's got some big challenges ahead, and even though the company's valuation has done well and they're introducing this brand-new category of watch, I think it's still, you know, jury's going to be out for a while of whether the Apple Watch is going to take off uh, as a new category of product for them. And it's time that they really differentiate because we've we've seen every different kind of music player. Uh, we've seen every different kind of smartphone from them and just different form factors now. And we've seen lots of different, you know, portable computers and desktop computers from them, but they've got to branch into some new categories. And the jury's out whether the Apple Watch will do that. Uh, although, you know, hey, say what you want about Tim Cook. I know Forbes recognized him as you know, one of the top leaders, the number one leader in the world right now. And uh, we've certainly seen under his leadership, uh, you know, the company continue to, to thrive and grow from a, a revenue and profit perspective. Yeah, and, and, you know, fundamentally, not to dig down too much into these two guys, but basically his thing is uh, supply and demand. That's his specialty. If you need something done, he's got the connections in, in China, he's got the relationships there, and, and he can make things happen on a manufacturing level, whereas Steve was more the, the, the dreamer uh, approach to things. Well, he's very, very closely connected to uh, what we were saying earlier, the mind of the consumer. And, and Steve's belief was never, you know, go conduct a whole bunch of focus groups and ask people what they want, because if they had done that, they would have said, oh, we want a, a smaller phone that doesn't drop as many calls. They never would have said, we wanted this revolutionary smartphone device that does X, Y, and Z. So you really have to, you know, dare to dream and, and re-envision the world. Yeah, uh, and, and, and hope that you're able to sell your dream. Let's talk a little bit about Chapter 5, Lead Score Demystified. So lead scoring, what does that, for people that don't really know what it is, in, based on your background, and how is it misconstrued, and how should people really be looking at it? Great topic and great chapter of the book, and uh, an area that, since the book was published two years ago, that continues to evolve. Um, so lead scoring, you know, let me take a step back. If you've ever been in marketing, for more than probably a couple years and working doing lead generation for sales, you've no doubt heard some version of <laughs> sales telling you your leads suck. Uh, that's, just, that's just something that kind of goes with the job uh, and that's what you've always heard. And so the challenge there is that marketing is generating as many quote unquote leads as they possibly can and they historically are throwing those leads over to sales and sales is following up. Whether that's a stack of business cards at a trade show or you know, running a campaign and getting a, a huge response. But when you pass over huge volumes of leads to sales, you know, think about the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, uh, you know, uh, famous scenes. There's that, there's that these leads aren't very good. And the friction uh, is there and marketing feels that sales doesn't follow up on anything. So to solve that challenge, the concept of lead scoring was introduced. And you know, people like myself and my firm were the pioneers in lead scoring. What we did is say, hey, look, we can, we can algorithmically calculate and predict the fit of this particular lead to the ideal customer profile. So when someone comes to the website, 
Uh, nowadays, uh, they're getting cookied, and all that, what we call digital body language, is being captured as they're interacting with the website. What pages are they looking at? How long are they spending on the site? What forms did they submit? Did they register for a webinar or attend it? Did they sign up for a free trial? All those different interactions digitally can be tracked and measured now, and that you know, helps to lead towards this algorithm of you know, the fit. The second variable is criteria such as, you know, what's the company's size or what's that person's role or how long has the company been in business? You know, if you're Staples and you're finding out that a company is adding um, dozens of new employees, that's going to be a better fit customer, right, for someone like Staples than a company that's not growing because Staples would go, hmm, if they're adding lots of employees, they're going to need new chairs, new furniture, new equipment, new paper, new supplies. So one type of information is called you know, behavioral or implicit information. And then what I was just describing to you, like firmographic or demographic information, like role and company size, industry, revenues, uh, that's this explicit or, or firmographic. And so lead scoring is an algorithm that says, let's take how interested they are and how well they fit to our profile, combine that together and produce for sales a score, a ranking. Maybe it's A, B, C, D, E. Maybe it's a number. There's many different ways to implement lead scoring, but that's the general premise, Bob, is that we look at people's behavior and we look at their fit criteria and we produce a score. And now sales and marketing together can say, yep, these leads are not worth your time. These are scoring low. They're not interested. But these leads over here, um, they should get your attention by either inside sales or field sales. And so if we can make sales more efficient, we can certainly increase deal size. Uh, we can certainly close more deals uh, and we can, you know, impact growth. So that's what lead scoring is all about. That's why there's a whole chapter dedicated to it. And it's all about how to do that within marketing automation systems and CRM systems. And one important last point, Bob, is that, you know, while this new technology enables us to do lead scoring, you can have the best lead scoring system in the world. You've got to train sales and teach them how to use it. Um, otherwise, it's not going, to have an, not going to have an impact. So once again, another example where sales and marketing has to align together on these new cutting-edge methodologies and, and technologies. What happens to the ones that are considered low score? Are they put back into a, a another sales shoot and they're considered, oh, let's educate these people more, let's keep blasting them, but on a slightly different angle to see if we can get them to a higher lead? Sure. Um, great, great question in terms of what do you do with the stuff that's kind of not sales ready? So back on chapter three, uh, where I talked about, you know, are you ready to start manufacturing demand? One of the things I talked about was a concept or introduced the concept of a demand funnel. We call it at demand gen. A demand funnel is instead of calling everything a lead, what you're doing is you're creating picture in your mind, Bob, if you will, you know, inventory buckets, uh, and these inventory buckets are different segments of your database. So if they're not customers, let's say before they're customers, you might have an, an inventory bucket called inquiries. And these are people who maybe haven't even responded to a campaign, or maybe they have, but they're not showing much interest. So this is the bucket of not so good, or not that interested yet, or not that qualified. Then you might have another bucket that we often call an MQL for a marketing qualified lead. That's what that acronym stands for. And a marketing qualified lead 
you know, that's, that's an inventory bucket, if you will, a segment of our database of people that are interested and meet at least a minimum level of criteria that's agreed upon between sales and marketing. And so you have these different inventory levels. Sometimes you have three, sometimes you have different five, of course, all the way leading down to customer. And so your question is, are there other inventory bins for the people who are either scoring low or maybe don't fit at all? And so if they're low scoring, Bob, yeah, we want to nurture them. Uh, that's another chapter in the book. We want to put them in a, a segment of the database that we target a series of messages to them over time to generate further interest and maybe obtain more qualification information. But that's what we do with the lower scoring leads. However, if there are some leads that we would call like a DQ, disqualified because they don't fit the criteria at all or, or never will, we want to put those in a bin and, and move them away from uh, nurturing and other marketing because it's simply just a waste of our efforts to try and convert someone who will never fit our customer profile. But maybe they responded to a campaign for another reason. Yeah, and, and you know, and for the listeners, that means that you don't throw the data away. That means that you're putting it into another um, database that stops them from being sent any more data in the future because you know it's just a waste of time. Absolutely, and, and you know, if you if you just run your email marketing like a spam cannon, where you just take as many names as you can and just you know keep sending emails to everybody, your results uh, and impact are going to go down and down and down because you just decay the the list and you're marketing to people who um, maybe don't even work at those companies anymore. So you really want to segment your database with such a level of hygiene that it doesn't look like an episode of, of Hoarders. <laughs> Uh, actually, you, you came across it. You made a very salient point there, and I, I think a lot of people don't get this: is what's the difference between spamming a potential customer or trying to uh, build a relationship by spamming, and actually listening and understanding what that demographic is and giving them useful information so they look at you as uh, somebody that really knows what they're talking about. You know, the difference between spamming and, and let's call it thoughtful email is everything from who you're targeting to, to how you're communicating with them. And I mean how, like in terms of how often, as well as the content of the email. So, you know, we all probably receive emails every day that in a, you know, almost microsecond or, or very short period of time, uh, we know immediately that this email is coming from uh, someone who's written this to thousands of people and it's impersonal. And so all we're trying to figure out in that small second is, is it worth deleting or not? Should I take a further look? But if the email is written very thoughtfully with the end user in mind, with the recipient in mind, like how we naturally write emails to, to friends and, and to colleagues, if we write in that tone, we're stepping a f further away from being spam. But you can actually send an email to someone who's a good candidate for your product or service and still be spamming them because you're not writing content in a thoughtful way and you're abusing uh, their inbox by sending them too many emails. So I believe that spamming or not spamming is a combination of thoughtful content sent to people at the right time and, and the right way. Uh, everything from the subject line to the body copy, and there's a lot of uh, thought leadership that's shared out there about effective content uh, strategy. Um, you always have to, to not legally be spammed, because some people on the, on the program might be listening, well, Dave, what's, what am I allowed to do in the United States? What's considered spam on a legal level? In the United States, 
you're allowed to send emails to any email address that you capture legally. You just need to make sure that you give that person a chance to opt out of the email. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to have an unsubscribe button, but it certainly means that at a minimum you need to provide the company name and address and phone number so they can contact you uh, to remove from the list. I think it's better practice to give them an easy way to click and opt out of the communication. And you can't you know, falsely represent yourself. You can't, you can't pretend to be something that you're not. That can be considered spam as well. But a lot of people don't know that you can actually just um, email people from the addresses that you gather. You just have to give them a way to opt out. And it's different laws, Bob, in different countries. So you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I'm very familiar with the, the spam uh, you know, act and, and it's called can spam, which is almost seems from the government like an oxymoron can spam. It's, a, it's, it's all about what you can't do and can do from, from uh, email marketing perspective. Yeah. And, and actually looking at statistic, there's 37% drop in spam in Canada over the last year since that was enacted, which is pretty yeah. shocking. Um, I, I think one of the things that people have to understand is if you're, People don't have a lot of time, and their inboxes are completely overloaded. So sending long, long, long emails, regardless if they're authentic, I don't think is very effective. Do you feel that uh, it's better to be short and concise and, and knowledge-based, or is it better to be chummy and long? And once again, I guess it would depend on the demographic. Less is more. Um, I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, I, I would have written a better letter, but I didn't have enough time. Um, th the better emails are short and to the point. You know, I got an email that I saw this morning from a gentleman on LinkedIn that you know sent me an email soliciting his business. It was lengthy, the entire value proposition he tried to articulate uh, in that email. So he let me make a, a decision of whether I wanted to follow up or not, simply from the content there. Didn't leave anything. Uh, you know, up to mystery. And so therefore, there was no reason for me to, to engage with him. One person might look at that as thoughtful that he did the whole thing right there. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't effective the way he wrote it. It was very spam-like. You could clearly tell he's written this to, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people. And I had no interest in, in reading the content because it was so impersonal. And when we get emails from people, you know, people are friends, uh, you know, their subject lines are cryptic in a way. Like, Hey, are you going? Um, uh, you're invited. Um, did you see this? Um, you know, question for you. You know, we write subject lines almost like conversation starters, and then the the content of the email is very short and to the point about what we want. Even people in our own company, if they write really long email, it's a turnoff to a lot of, of folks. Email is not a, a way, a good a good platform for communicating. Uh, or having a conversation with someone. It's, it's really, I look at it, it's an invitation to a conversation or it's follow-up information from a conver conversation you know, around action items and such. And we, we as marketers should look at it that way as a conversation starter or a follow-up to an engagement with a prospect or customer. Yeah, I mean, these days, I mean, to, to help clarify for people, that, you know, getting a long email that's long-winded doesn't work. You can get the same amount of information just by saying, um, hey, I, I noticed you're in, you've got to do your research, but I noticed you're in this industry. I just read an amazing post about this industry. You might find it useful. And then it's your post on that industry. If the person clicks through, then they're generally interested in that pain point. And if that article or blog post actually gives uh, actionable 
things that they can do to fix that problem regardless if it has anything to do with your product or not, that's way more effective than trying to do that in um, the direct email. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Um, Let's talk about analytics because I think there's a major confusion about analytics today where people are overanalyzing, they're agonizing over it. They're saying, oh, we're not hitting the numbers or, oh, because this happened, what do we do? Um, Do you think we're in a a perpetual uh, pivot mode where you're writing copy, you're developing a marketing plan, you're testing it, you're seeing where it's not working, you're improving it, you're improving, you're improving it, compared to trying to perfect and put something out and then not worry about it? Well, you know, that's, that's a question really around kind of like agility meets perfection. And in marketing, uh, we always tell our clients uh, that they have to be very agile. And the reason is, is because everything's moving at the speed of light right now. And if somebody wants to create, you know, the ultimate piece of content or the perfect website or the ultimate nurture program, what, what have you, they could spend a massive amount of time, extra time working on this only to find out that it didn't produce the results that they wanted to. And by actually, um, you know, first building something, automating as much as they can, and then measuring it and optimizing it, they're going to get much better results. And so, you know, there was kind of almost two parts to your question is, how can we leverage analytics and, and are we ever leveraging analytics too much or being too analytical? Um, let's come back to that. But in terms of, of getting into modern marketing and testing marketing programs, I'm a big fan of, you know, pilot, then perfect. Um, don't try and do everything perfectly and spend, you know, extra amounts of time. You know, back in the day, Bob, when we were doing direct mail, we had to be really thoughtful about what we were doing because the cost of writing a direct mail piece, the postage, the list, everything, if we misfired, uh, we, we, you know, that was, that was very costly. You wouldn't have necessarily even the budget to do it again. But today, for example, if you're doing email marketing or maybe building a campaign and you have a landing page, why not test two different landing pages? Don't get hung up about, you know, the words of every piece of content on a landing page. Get the main sound bites in there. Get the graphics in there. Build two different landing pages and then test which one is going to convert more effectively. So I'm a big fan of testing and I'm a big fan of getting to market quickly. I like the book like The Lean Startup. Another great book, if you haven't talked to those folks over there, you know, really focuses on agility and how to get to market quickly. And, and the companies we've seen you know, be so successful in the past decade are, are companies that didn't even exist a decade ago. So they've had to be agile and they've had to take lots of risks um, towards, their, towards their growth. So, you know, for our listening audience and, and people that are generally interested in, in improving their ability for their, their company to, to market and uh, basically manufacture demand, like your book says, um, what's a, a first good step for them to get into? The first step, you know, the, my book's really written for people who have invested in marketing automation or about to. So if they have Marketo or Eloqua or you know, even HubSpot or, or Salesforce's marketing platform, if they're committed to these technologies uh, or have them, they should absolutely grab a copy of my book. Uh, they can download the digital version at manufacturingdemand.com or they can grab the physical version you know, from Amazon or other retailers. Um, but that's almost like a prerequisite is their commitment to either getting those technologies or having those technologies. 
if they don't have those technologies, I strongly recommend that anybody who's doing, um, you know, who's not marketing online today or has been a company that's doing some online marketing, they should take a look at what's, what's out there now in the marketing technology landscape. Uh, they should have a CRM, something like salesforce.com. Uh, they should get a marketing automation system uh, and take a look at the demos that are online uh, for that. Uh, they can come to our website, which is demandgen.com, and download a bunch of additional uh, resources to help them uh, you know, figure out what the next steps are. And you know, we said earlier, Bob, it's not if, it's when. Every business on the planet is going to use digital marketing and online marketing to acquire and engage with their customers. It's, it's just when. And I, I think, you know, in the next five years is that critical window where if you wait too long, you're going to fall behind your competition. And if you get started now or already on your way, then you're going to get ahead of the competition and learn just what we were talking about. You're going to learn what works and what doesn't and, uh, you know, give you a competitive edge from a sales and marketing perspective. Yeah, and I, and I think this book really gives you a, a great uh, outline of how to do it properly because there's a lot of people out there that have heard of it and and oh yeah we're going to get into it and we're going to buy the software yada 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 but they have no idea about implementation and that's what's so wonderful about this book it's like step by step of this is what you got to do and this is the headspace you got to be in yeah it's a thing you know, i'm glad you pointed that out uh, you know I wanted to, the reason I wrote the book was simply this. I wanted to take all my experiences working with hundreds of clients and my own personal experiences in success in marketing and take those experiences out of my head and into a book so that people could read, just like you said, what to do and how to go about modern marketing. Uh, I am starting a new book this year. Uh, I, I've been working on it, but I'm going to actually start you know, the, the next stage of, of drafting it. And I don't have a working title for it yet, but it's, the, um, it's almost the prequel to this book, kind of like Star Wars style. Um, this book is very much about lead management, right? It's about the art of conversion, how to take prospects that you have and convert them to customers. The next book that I'm working on is going to be broader than that, and it's going to introduce the concept of the demand factory, which is a metaphor for how modern marketing should work. So, you, Bob, your point about you know these systems um, needed a guidebook. They don't have a manual. There is no instruction manual on how to use you know marketing automation, for example. So, my book is really the the missing manual. It was a. It's not a for dummies book. I mean, it's not literally going to say go to this menu and do this and do that. It's going to give you the methodologies and uh, a very practical kind of practitioner way of where to start. And, and how to engage on some of these heavy lifting initiatives like lead scoring, lead nurturing, uh, measurement, sales and marketing alignment, those hot topics. My next book is going to cover um, customer acquisition, conversion, measurement, as well as customer relationships, you know, expanding, uh, let's call it wallet share uh, or share of wallet, um, which uh, is for a lot of companies, that's 65 or more percent of their revenue every year is coming from their existing customers. So I want to make sure I talk about modern marketing in terms of growing client relationships in my next book. We've been talking with David Lewis, Manufacturing Demand, The Principles of Successful Lead Management. I would highly recommend this book for actually anybody, C-suite and down, uh, because, you know, by reading the book, you'll have a much better fundamental understanding of the power and the necessity for an organization to really be considering this very, very seriously. So for all you people out there, check it out. Uh, David, thanks for being on the show. 
Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out that I am on the New York Times best giver list if they had that. Uh, and I say that in jest because if you go to the site, manufacturingdemand.com, you can download a full copy of the book uh, for free. And so if people want to get started there and read about it, uh, read the book digitally, they can do that. But if they want to grab a hard copy, they, as I mentioned earlier, they can. But I really want to make sure that the world understands um, these new concepts and methodologies. And then, Bob, thanks for having me on the show and, and having a chance to talk about these topics. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.